This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Everyday Philosophers, where we interview philosophers who are neither Twitter famous nor what I usually say is research famous. You might be research famous. I don't know. But uh, I would say, I'm, I mean, like, you're not like David Lewis famous among philosophers. No, I'm not. Are you? Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, it's hard for one to know. Um, but, you know, uh, I'm told that the guy who founded the BBC banned yeah. the word famous on the grounds that it was either redundant or false. So that mm. if you explain to someone that they were famous, they weren't. Um, yeah. And if you, yeah. Okay. Okay, good. All right. The point is, I want to anyway. talk to you. Okay. Yeah. Hi, Rob. Hi. And um, let me introduce my guest. His name is David Dick. He's a professor of philosophy, but maybe also business or management. What is it? Uh, so my official title is I'm an associate professor in the philosophy departments uh, here at the University of Calgary. And then I hold a fellowship in the Canadian Center for Advanced Leadership in Business, which is a, a housed inside the Haskane School of Business. So I'm like a philosophy professor with a business fellowship in a title that involves about 83 words. So I can't, I can't possibly introduce that. No. David Dick is a guy I know. I mean, that's basically the long and the short of it. So um, before I ask you what it's like to teach in, in that setup, I wanna start with my uh, classic small talk questions. So uh, we are now officially starting small talk. So uh, David, what do you think will be the greatest tragedy to befall you? Oh, so it can't be one that's already happened? No, no, it can be. Like you can say, this has happened and it's gonna just get better from here. Oh, that's an optimistic way to think about it. Mm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't wanna start off on too much of a bummer, but it is yeah. hard for me to think of something that would affect me as much as the death of my father. And that's all. Oh yeah. So like, Yeah, my father passed away in 2016. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's well, I'm sorry for you too. It sucks. Yeah. Um, yeah usually people don't answer these questions seriously, but I'll take it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had a really bad, um, really bad restaurant experience in San Diego recently. Hmm. Um, the steak was overpriced and, uh, it wasn't good. It was like Denny's quality, but it was like $57. Thanks. And yeah, yeah. And also I didn't like the ambiance. It was very bright and I want my steakhouse is dark. And we, sh we showed up on Memorial Day and they said, we don't have our usual menu because it's Memorial Day. But everybody else had their usual menu because it's Memorial Day. So I didn't understand this rationale. Long story short, I believe this was the greatest tragedy to befall me. That's wonderful. I mean, yeah, yeah. what a formed life if that's mm. uh, the worst. And also I should say, I like, I don't want to jinx the world, the future to come up with something that's even worse than what I've been through. But I also think that like, that's, I think the worst thing that's happened to me. And as such, I think I've lived a very fortunate life because mm -hmm. I think in the normal course of things, we lose our parents and you just like, you have to deal with that. And like, if yeah. that's the thing that happens to me in my life, I'm pretty lucky. Yeah, so so I see that we're both optimists in a way, except I'm much more um, callous, I would say, given that I put the restaurant thing at number one. But we both think that uh, we live good lives. Yes, that's right. 
Um, yeah. I mean, maybe that's just a sideways insult to your dad. I don't know. Oh, I think you'd have to take it that way. Or yeah. it's just a way that I've become very stoic, become detached from earthly possessions, except for restaurant experiences. Oh, okay. So it's like a line item stoicism. You're, you're getting better and better at each category of things, but you still haven't quite managed yeah. restaurants yet. That's good. I like it's that. my stoic bucket list, right? <laughs> I'm just crossing off things I care about. I still can't do the restaurant thing. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, like yeah. a good diner experience is really great. So I can see how that would be hard to detach yourself from. I still think about it from time to time. So let me ask you a question, David. You teach at the University of Calgary. You have been through the American educational system. You have we went to graduate school together at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. So you have some understanding of what the American university system is like. What's the Canadian university system like to the extent that it differs from the American one, if at all? Um, so I imagine some of what I, I imagine some of my perceptions about this are kind of local because I really only have experience in Western Canada and in Alberta and things might well be different in Ontario and, and like, you know, Quebec. And things mm -hmm. like that. But my, the things that stand out to me in terms of difference from other places I've been, and I was really only at big public universities in the States, so University of Utah and then the University of Michigan. Um, one thing that's different is college means something different in Canada. So no, so students describe themselves as going to university uh, in order to distinguish from going to college. So college is more like what you and I would call a community college in America, oh. you do like a two-year degree, which results in a diploma, and then you can transfer to a university and do two, sort of two more years to get a degree, I think is the way mm -hmm. the terminology usually works. Um, yeah. So, you know, college isn't like a generic term for any four-year place the way it is in America. And this tracks like a kind of difference um, in, uh, I think a lot of the, I have this perception of my students as like, unusually well-educated uh, in comparison to lots of my American students. Cause I think that the high end of, the high end of all the places I have taught is, a, is very, very comparable. But my experience mm -hmm. at the University of Calgary is just that like the students who are struggling the most aren't having nearly the kinds of problems that I had, uh, that they were, that those students would have at the American universities I was at. And I think that's yeah. because a lot of those students don't get admitted to four-year universities and instead go to colleges. So the student population is a little bit different if you're teaching yeah. at a university versus a college, but I've never taught at a college here in Canada. So maybe I've got that wrong. Um, that's one thing that is sort of different. Um, another thing that has really jumped out at me is that, you know, there's a stereotype of Canadians being more polite. Um, mm. I find that they are also more respectful to academics, that academics oh. have kind of a more, not uniformly, right? There are, I still, I have gotten some hate mail and like, I've gotten angry phone calls. I, occasionally I have done, I've done media and, you know, I'll get feedback and like, listen here, Mr. Smarty Pants, you don't know what you're doing. Um, but- And were they right? Um, no, uh, okay. but uh, I mean, not on those specific issues. I often don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but like, well, I was I just wondering if the hate mail was more educated. Um, the hate across the board, literacy is just better here than, okay. than my experience in America. I mean, the public education system here, I think is just stronger. Um, uh -huh. and 
routinely, I think Canada does extremely well on like international tests for mathematics and reading and stuff like that. So I think the base yeah. level of literacy is higher here than it is in America. Um, and uh, so like frequently in the States, I would get things as an employee as like, whenever I was teaching, I would have some class of students who would be like, I'm paying to be here, therefore you are my employee and the customer is always right. And yeah. you have to, right, there, there was this sort of way of treating me, um, treating me as an employee rather than somebody in a position of um, respect. And I've never gotten that at the Canadian university. And I think there's just a greater number of people who accord the fact that I'm a professor some respect. And yeah. that is kind of nice. So are there, are there um, I would imagine there are like, I could be wrong because Canada has what, 30 million people or so? 37, I think, yeah. 37, okay. So would you say there, is, there are fewer Canadian universities on a per capita basis than American ones? I would think so, just because there's something like 3,000 universities or edu higher educational institutions, maybe more in America. Maybe I there's 6,000, I don't know. I would guess so. So are, are the universities, like how many students do you have at Calgary? Do you have any idea? So I think uh, the whole organization, I think is about 50,000 people and a, around like 30,000 of those are students if you count undergrad and grad. So like, it's pretty big. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's big, but also maybe a little bit more selective than your typical public university in the United States. Because as you were saying, it seems like they don't let the same number of people into, or, or maybe students with as little academic preparation as we'll often find in the States, they don't let them into the Canadian universities or at least to Calgary. I, I would think so. So, so Calgary, like, you know, I'm happy to be in a really nice and wonderful philosophy department. And Calgary is part of what's known as the U15, which is like the sort of 15 comparator schools in uh, Canada. So Calgary is a really good school, but I think in like international rankings, it's pretty comparable mm -hmm. to the University of Utah, um, which also has a great philosophy department where I went as an undergrad. And like in Calgary, you will routinely have high school students who are like good and working and like, you know, competent and worried that they won't meet the admission standards for the University of Calgary. And like, that does not happen for the University of Utah, right? If you are a yeah. student who has like a very basic level of competence, like you're gonna, you may not succeed, but like you're gonna be admitted to the University of Utah mm -hmm. in a way that I think you might not get into the University of Calgary. Do you have a lot of American students at Calgary? Um, we, you, yeah. um, so uh, Calgary, I'm told, is like the most American of all the Canadian cities because of its mm -hmm. relationship to the oil industry. And there's just like a lot of Americans. That, like, I think there's al almost always a direct flight from Calgary to Houston because um, mm -hmm. there's like a connection between the two cities. So I do have a bunch of American students, but I wouldn't ballpark it at more than about 10%. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um other than the, the composition of the student body itself, does the university function just like an American university does? Um, everything is a department. Do you call yourselves faculty? Do you call yourself staff? Do you call yourself lecturers? Or? So I think everything more or less functions the same way American universities do, um, mm -hmm. except very confusingly, it, it is, it's like you took an American university and shook it. So all of the names of things fell off and then you rearrange those names in a basically random facet, 
so like I have all these like academic title like academic words in my vocabulary with like yeah. faculty college and department and head and things like that and like all of those are rearranged here so faculty where I am refers to what like at Michigan would have been a college so like the college of literature science and art is here yeah. faculty of arts and we have the faculty oh. of business and so when people talk about the faculty, they're talking about that abstract thing, not the group of people who like you and I, who are the instructors, right? Which is what that yeah. means, sort of American English. And so like it actually, in some ways it was worse than just having totally different terminology because people would continually use a word that I thought I understood and then discover like, oh no, that means something yeah. different here. Yeah, so it's a false cognate kind of. It, it is very much a false cognate. Yeah. Um, and so, but otherwise it functions similarly. So let me ask you about what it's like to teach in a business school. It's called the, the Haskain Business School. Is that right? Haskain School of Business. Yep. Do you know who Haskain was or what Haskain was? I have met Haskain. Uh, Dick Haskain is uh, the philanthropist and he was, um, I forget, uh, Dick Haskain was a philanthropist who's given an awful lot of money to the School of Business and is still sort of actively involved in it. So mm -hmm. I have met him on a few occasions. He's, he's a big supporter and um, gave money to the school and routinely funds scholarships and initiatives and things like that. Okay. So, okay. So this is a person named Dick Haskin who's a philanthropist. And now tell me the Haskin School of Business, how is it different? Like, first of all, uh, it's not the School of Business, it's a faculty of business. Is that right? <laughs> well, here, here's the fun. Um, okay. He, like according to the, as a, as a wing of the university, it's mm -hmm. a, a faculty. Um, mm -hmm. And then it became, you know how like Cornell has the Sage School of Philosophy, which is like yeah. maybe supervenient on their department. Uh, like yeah. <laughs> the Haskain School of Business bears that same relationship to the faculty of management. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So the, you, you are, you are part of what I would call the Department of Management. Yes. Okay, and you you're like you're you you like are half time there, or you have a joint appointment. I don't know if those are two different things. Um, I it's <laughs> this is uh, maybe we shouldn't labor too much on this because it's like weirdly complicated. Um, I am less than half time in the business school but the business school buys out half of my teaching in order to open up, they, they buy out half of my philosophy teaching in order to open up time for me to do all the stuff that they want me to do. So oh, what do they want you to do? Well, so um, I'm a fellow in CCAL, this uh, leadership center, which is also focused on ethics. And I'm in charge of what's now called the ethics strategy. So like I carry out ethics research uh, and I'm also sort of in charge of ethics resources and ethics education. So that means like in an ad hoc way, if somebody wants guidance on what kind of ethics resources to teach in their class, I can help them figure that out. If they need a guest lecturer to come in and like do a day to talk with their students about something, I can do that. I've, I, I do that routinely. And then in the last year, we've started bringing, Zoom actually made it easier for us to bring a whole bunch of people we have been we've been bringing sort of a cohort of like very well respected I'm, I'm so glad they said yes business ethics scholars to come give lectures and sort of like provide um, new research and business ethics to graduate students and undergrads and things like that and then along the yeah. side of that we also the so there are sort of five or six of those people 
and they come and each give one or two lectures throughout the year. Um, and then over the course of the year, we are sort of at a working group where we share work in progress. Um, so uh, that, and then like various, you know, back when we had public events, I would be either a moderator or a speaker for sort of ethics related stuff. And that's like, I think that's the majority of what I do for them. So it's like, um, I, I think it's a similar amount of time to teaching two classes. Mm -hmm. It's just much more diffuse. Like it doesn't, it doesn't start in September and end in December. It's like ongoing and, you know, you, things come up or it ebbs and flows more. And is this why you have made, as you mentioned earlier, media appearances? Is this something like the business school or whatever you call it, uh, your business <laughs> conglomerate business arranges? School. Yeah. Okay. Is this, this is something your business school arranges or you have to like uh, try to make these things happen. And they're sort of like part of your remit is you've got to make these appearances happen. We're not going to do that for you. And if you don't do that, then that'll look bad for your, I mean, you already got tenure, I assume, but um but was part of getting tenure being able to find these media appearances or they have like a department that tries to make these things happen? So it, it, uh, it happens in both ways. So both, I'm part of two faculties, the Faculty of Arts and the, the Faculty of Management, I think it used to be called. Um, they each have like media and communications people. So mm -hmm. if, uh, the way that would happen is if they like wanna pitch something, they might approach me to say like, like, hey, we need somebody who does what you do to come talk about this thing. Or if like a journalist or another media person calls the university and says, hey, I need somebody who can talk about this, one of those media people might direct the query to me and then I might do it. But then occasionally, I mean, especially once you've done a little bit of media, um, you, a journalist might just contact you directly because they like, if they do a Google search and you come up, then they're like, oh, that guy's right around the corner. I should call him and see if he can come do my, yeah, do an interview or something. So um, media, I, haven't, I really haven't done much lately because I think the conversation has been much more around politics than it has been around ethics uh, in yeah. the last four years or so. But uh, I did a swarm of media about the ethics of tipping uh, mm. about five or six years ago. And that all sort of like, I had been quoted in an article a year before and then a local restaurant decided to abolish tips. And then I, I think just pretty much everybody did like a search for Calgary and tipping and I came up as the local expert and I ended up on the national news for that to talk about tipping. And those, like, so there was the big, uh, you know, conglomeration of like five or six media uh, appearances all at once. And then it sort of tapered off. Um, I see. So if I went up to a random Canadian and I said, you know who David Dick is, they would not necessarily know. Or like, if I went to a random American and I said, who's, Cornell West, they probably wouldn't know, but there'd be a fair number who would, because he appears on TV and stuff. Yeah. Do you appear on TV that much? I don't appear on TV. I have colleagues who do. Um, like uh -huh. I have colleagues in the political science department who I think are well-known public figures. Um, and I had like, when all of that was happening, I did have the weird experience of people in the city of Calgary, like recognizing me from media, which was weird. Um, but that hasn't happened in a long time. And that was extremely local. So, yeah. Yeah. I have also had that experience. I have been recognized for things I didn't do. Oh, nice. Uh, and it's, yeah, I mean, it still feels good to be recognized. Um, apparently I look enough like Mo Rocca that I can be confused by for him or, or like uh, Matt Stone. 
I think is the other guy I've gotten oh, confused okay. for. I could see from that. South Park. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, Go ahead. so have, have you taught, like, do you, you said you've guest lectured, but have you taught your own classes in the business school or do you teach your classes in the philosophy department? So I have taught classes in both places. Um, the actual business ethics class or the philosophy of money class that I teach, those are philosophy classes that I teach through the philosophy department, but they frequently contain like business majors who are interested in uh -huh. the topics. And then I have taught like ethics classes, uh, hybrid classes and philosophy of science classes in the graduate program in the business school. Um, so in I, the business school, you said. In the business school, yeah. They used to have, so for PhD students, a required course used to be philosophy of science for management studies. And when I first officially joined the business school, the person who used to teach it, I think, started to run the MBA program and they needed somebody else to teach it. And they were like, hey, Dave's a philosopher, he can do this. Um, and so I did for two years. What is philosophy of science for management studies? Is that like philosophy of social science? Um, so as the instructor, you have a fair amount of latitude in how you want to teach it. Um, but I think like um, you, you, you haven't officially asked the question yet, but you mentioned you were going to ask like, what's it like to teach in a business school? And this Yeah, that's basically, this is my long, my, my, my choppy way of doing that. What's it like to teach in yeah. a business school, Dave? So, so this, this speaks to that question, I think, because I think like management is a discipline it usually traces itself back to like Taylorism from the mm -hmm. late 19, late 1800s, I think. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's been around for like less than a, uh, less than 200 years as an identifiable discipline. And sometimes I think it doesn't, I think there are disagreements inside the discipline about like what its disciplinary and methodological standards are, just like philosophy. Um, yeah. The place where I am, I think thinks of itself as thinks of management scholarship as basically a social science. And so you can mm -hmm. carry it out in terms of quantitative or qualitative research. And so when they train their management PhD students, they want them to be conversant in like statistics, quantitative methods. And this class was designed to get them to think sort of like seriously about philosophical issues in study design and what science can under understand. Cause I, I, there they conceive of themselves as a science. Okay, so how how applied are they compared to like philosophers? You know, there's obviously more movements. Well, I shouldn't say obviously, but to, as I see things, there's more movements to applied issues in philosophy than there used to be. Um, but imagine that business professors might still think of us as highly theoretical and abstract rather than, you know, I could imagine a business professor working on not not like, management in general, but how to manage people at a particular business or something like that, where it's yeah. more like an ecological study. But um, are, are they, do, does the range of abstraction vary from highly abstract to quite applied or is it more narrow than that? I, um, I think from sort of a philosopher's vantage point, everything would look super applied because uh -huh. everything is sort of, uh, Every, it, it would look applied because everything is sort of housed within the question of um, markets or business or you know managing employees or things like that. And so it is constrained to a certain set of questions in the way that like bioethics 
would be, mm -hmm. you know, philosophy sort of directed at medicine. Here it's like inquiry directed at business stuff. And so it's going to look applied there. Um, I think there are things that feel kind of abstract for me. Like I'm actually pretty stoked about accountants because I think academic accounting is, is surprisingly, I, I found that it was surprisingly philosophical um, in, uh -huh. in, case, in lots of cases, the people like, so, you know, the people who are learning how to do the accounting according to its current rules, those yeah. folks, that activity doesn't feel particularly philosophical to me. But like some of my colleagues in Haskane who are the academic accountants who are like engaging the question of like, here is a new kind of financial vehicle or like, you have a thing that's currently worthless, but we think it might be worth $10 million in 10 years. How should we reflect that on the balance sheet? Like, how does that contribute to your overall net worth? And there's like yeah. genuine disagreement about how to do that. And it actually, it honestly feels like myriology to me about how we're going, like, how shall, like, how do the parts comprise the whole? And like, when they get into yeah. those, I'm like, oh, I know this, this feels very, this feels very abstract and philosophical to me. And so yeah. I think those, like, um, I think those debates are really abstract and, and strike me as very philosophical. Yeah, for those who don't know, Mariology is the study of parts and wholes, how they relate to each other, right? Not, not whole, whole W-H-O-L-E, not, not the empty things. Um, okay, so, so now I imagine you talk to your business colleagues um, mm -hmm. about stuff. And do you find that they're like, how do those conversations go? I'm sure they they go lots of different ways because there's lots of different people, but do they, do, do they find, do you find that they're, they're particularly interested in really theoretical stuff because that's not the sort of thing they do? Or do you find they're, they're particularly uninterested in that because that's not the sort of thing they do? I mean, it, it very, it actually varies according to the person. Uh, uh -huh. Like I have some colleagues who are, really very genuinely, genuinely philosophically interested about stuff. And they are sort of very curious about the more abstract stuff and want to talk yeah. about it. Um, and then others of them are just like, how, you know, how does this apply to the question I'm asking? And specifically, like, how does this help get me another publication? Um, yeah. So uh, I think one of the problems with one of the struggles I've had in the research, the difference in disciplinary norms around research um, is in business, like co-authorship is incredibly common. Like you will frequently have a paper with four to six authors on things. Um, and, you know, each of those persons is sort of a disciplinary specialist and contributes their own specialty to something. So sometimes people have approached me to possibly be a co-author where they want me to like sprinkle some ethics on the paper, um, uh, the way you would like check the math or something, or I don't know. And like, oh, okay. the sort of like discipline where I'm like, it kind of like, maybe there are some people who are good at doing that, but I'm certainly not because that's not the way my brain works and not the, not, not the sort of way my philosophical progress works. And so yeah, um, that has been a struggle. And then some people, some people have said like, wait, are you a quantitative or a qualitative researcher? And I'm like, no. And then they're like, what do you, I don't even understand what you do. Um, so sometimes yeah. those, those disciplinary uh, differences can be, um, you know, in terms of like trying to get something published, that can be a, a problem because what, what is prized by management journals is not what's prized by philosophy journals. Um, I remember reading a um, philosophy compass article about business ethics as a field. And for those who don't know, philosophy compass is a journal that does basically literature surveys. 
And so the author of this article, I forgot who it was, but he said that um, about 90% of the work in business ethics is descriptive rather than prescriptive. And this was as of 2008. I don't know if things have changed since then. But the basic thought being that like they, they weren't many business ethicists or many people who do business ethics weren't so much saying, here's how you should structure your business. It would be more like, here is the code of conduct they have on this business. And here are the effects it has had on the behavior of the people in that business and that sort of stuff. Um, is, that, uh, is, that, is that largely true still? And uh, does that create, like, is that the kind of business ethics you do now, like descriptive business ethics, or you're still like prescriptive and that's okay? And how does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, um, I don't know the exact percentages, but in terms of uh, about 90% sounds pretty plausible to me. Mm-hmm. So there are um, five or six um, discipline-specific business ethics journals. I think unquestionably the two most prestigious are Business Ethics Quarterly and the Journal of Business Ethics. And all of those include lots of empirical descriptive work. Business Ethics mm-hmm. Quarterly was founded by more or less philosophers. And I think they fight to keep space for more sort of philosophical work in there. And then the Journal of Business Ethics publishes a lot more papers and does publish like what I would think of as straight philosophy papers, but is also far more descriptive as well. So, I mean, I think um, part of that just has to do with the fact that there are like so many more social scientists in so many more management schools just just capable of generating far more work. And this is a place where it finds a home. for it. That, I mean, that it finds a home in these journals. Yeah, I've, I've, I've always thought that um, social scientists, this is not meant to be a dig, but just a kind of um, uh, methodological approach. I, I always felt I would be able to publish more papers if I were a social scientist. Like it would just be easier to publish paper because there's more consensus about how you do a paper, right? You have like your discussion section, your conclusion sections, your result, or your uh, approach section or methodology section. And also, I guess I assume that a lot of those empirical studies were just, you know, you just have like the main time constraint is just how long it takes to run the, the experiment or whatever. Uh, but am I wrong about that? Or do you find, cause I do see some philosophers, I was just looking, I don't know why I do this, but I was just looking at Barrett Brogard's CV yesterday and she has like 147 articles. And I thought, I don't understand how that's possible like, I, I don't know how I could possibly do that, even if you locked me in a room and yeah. just said, you just have to write philosophy now on, you don't get to see your family. And I'd be like, you know, okay, but I don't, I, I think maybe I'll get 30 articles or something. Yeah. I mean, I would also be quite depressed. So that, that would have effect, but. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. So I don't know if it's necessary. well, there's a way that in saying that it's easier to do that could sound like we're saying it's, you know, less intellectually rigorous or something like that. And I don't think that's the reason why, but like certainly social scientists publish in terms of quantity way more than we do. And I think mm-hmm. one big reason for that is just that they can do it in teams. So mm-hmm. you can build an engine or build a lab uh, that w- can be like constantly devoted to generating results and writing things up. And if you have one of those labs, you will just be able to generate more. If you have like a research team or a research lab, 
you can, con it can constantly be generating things, even if specific members of the team, like, need to take a holiday or get sick or are depressed or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in philosophy, where it is overwhelmingly single author, um, your productivity varies precisely with like how well you are doing. So like, you know, if I had a lab behind me generating new philosophical insights, I could get sick or I could like have a depressive episode and like come out of it and be like, oh, here's a draft for me to like touch up and send off. Whereas when it's just me, if I come, if I have a bad month and I come out of it and like, oh, I have nothing. Uh, I have to start from scratch, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I actually think the, the, the team effort in the social sciences and elsewhere allows you to generate more, um, just generate more research as a result of that. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's, that's fair. Like I was, I was not saying it was less rigorous. I was, I was saying that they have a more agreed upon methodology about how to do papers. So that like makes it easier to figure out how to do the paper writing game. But then I see people, I think there's a guy named Fitz or something like that. There, there was a guy who had like, you know, 20 books and a hundred papers and he was like 35 in philosophy. And I just figured he has figured out the way to write a philosophy paper. He knows the secret sauce, like how you structure the paper. Like here's a problem, here's classic solutions, here's my solution, here's why those other ones don't work, the end. And just yeah. rinse and repeat a hundred times. And I suppose we have that too, if you, if you want to do it that way. So let's, speaking of um, how they write papers in business. So what sort of stuff are you researching right now? You said you do a philosophy of money class. You said uh, you did a philosophy of science class. Uh, you do business ethics. So you can tell me what your favorite thing you researched was or what you're researching now or anything like that. Cool. So, um, so mainly... Um, pretty much all of my research for the last few years has just been squarely in the philosophy of money. Um, and mm -hmm. that's the place where I, I, I started it 10, I mean, 12 years ago, I guess now. I mean, when, when I went on the job market, I had this sample syllabus for a class in the philosophy of money, which I thought would be like a fun way to bring undergrads in the door and then roughly talk about value theory, right? Because I thought it would be easy to motivate, like, how does this thing have value? Um, right. Then it turned out that once I had taught the class, there's just, I think there's so much interesting stuff going on philosophically with money. And this is changing because I think philosophy of money is like emerging as a subfield. Um, but when I started working on it, there was a real absence where like, you know, there were economic historians and like anthropologists of money and sociologists of money, but like the philosophers weren't really thinking about money as mm -hmm. the distinguished object of study. So uh, I've written a few papers now on really sort of the ontology, like the metaphysics and philosophy of science of money. Okay. Um, so I have uh, one paper that I co-authored with a graduate student that sort of developed out of her master's thesis uh, about the nature of what money is. And then most recently, I have a paper out in a special issue of the Journal of Social Ontology about money. Uh, where I'm, I'm, it's, it's the first step in a larger project, I think, about the ethics of currency. So I am interested in what, so one, one kind of like metaphysical question is, yeah. hey, what can be money? If I show up at your house and try to buy something from you with seashells, can I do that? And like, what could be money? What are the metaphysical constraints around what something could be? And there are a bunch of different interesting answers and sort of like the ontology of money. And then a yeah. couple of years ago, prompted by a really good paper by Toby Sharding about Fichte of all people, 
um, I started wondering about what sort of ethical concerns we might have or what sort of ethical reasons might drive what we choose to use as money. So like take, like, take the ontological questions to settle for the time being or like just don't focus on them. And then instead say like, hey, should we use dollars, euros, um, seashells, fruit, cigarettes or whatever? And like, what are the ethical considerations around what we choose to use as our currencies? Um, so I have a paper out about that against teleological answers to that question. Okay. So, so what's a teleological answer to that question? So when I, uh, teleological um, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. When I yeah. say it, what I mean to be rejecting is a kind of argument which concludes, oh, money is for this, therefore we ought to make it out of this. So it reason, it, it uh, derives a conclusion about what we should use as money from a premise about what money is for. So money, you know, money is a store of value, right? Say, therefore we ought to make our money out of something that is as like imperishable as possible, right? We should aim to make our money as invulnerable to decay as we possibly can because money is for storing value. Therefore we ought to have it be as durable as possible or money is a means of exchange. So we should pick something that is um, exchangeable to the widest group of people possible just because, hey, that's what money's for. It's easy It's easy to figure out what we should use for money. Just like figure out what it's for and then that settles all the questions for you. So okay. I, think that, I think that style of argument is mistaken um, because I think it neglects important ethical, ethical and political considerations um, that might drive us to prefer a money that is like less exchangeable or maybe a bit more imperishable or you know, maybe is a less stable unit of account or whatever. Um, I think that, so that, that most recent paper that just came out is an argument against those kind of like teleological claims that money is okay. for this. The nature of money is to be like this. Therefore, we, it ought to be, right? Uh, the majority of these arguments are like, money should be like this. Therefore, centrally issued fiat currencies are bad because the government okay. can manipulate the supply and money is meant to be like this measurement of underlying value. And if you manipulate the supply, it undermines the purpose for which money was created and therefore it's bad. Um, right. Like possible that that's bad, but I don't think it's bad for simple, for sheerly sort of teleological reasons that that's what we designed money for. So these, these teleological accounts, I would imagine they would, because they say, here's the function of money, right? Here's what money is for. They would have derived that from how money has historically been used and guessing, right? Or do they look at how things have historically been used and then say, well, you know, lots of things have historically been used predominantly for a certain function, but it had other functions like spandrels attached to it. And so we can ignore those spandrels and just focus on the central features of money. Like how do they figure out what money is for? So other than just by looking at the record. Yeah, so it's actually pretty interesting because there, um, there are like substantive conceptual disagreements about what uh -huh. the nature of money is that are sometimes built up out of a, sometimes built up out of a consideration of a historical story that is that frequently the story people like to tell is not true. Um, and then other people just want to sort of deny 
that that's even the correct, they are just sort of applying the wrong concept of money. So really those sorts of questions are usually settled at the background level, sometimes whether the authors notice it or not, that they are, they just sort of have a pre-theoretical, well, sorry, I just read a book by Jeffrey Ingham that is pretty influential called The Nature of Money. And it is defense of a, of a credit theory of money um, that, and Ingham wants to insist that the, the essential nature of money is that it's a unit of account. Uh, and so he has this sort of concept of what money is and he goes back through the history and applies his concept of like money as a unit of account and then rejects a whole bunch of things that look to, you know, that before I, you know, look to the ordinary reader as like, that's definitely money. And he goes, nope, that's not money because it's not a unit of account. Uh, that's a mere medium of exchange. So all of that historical data doesn't count because it doesn't meet my definition of what money is. So there yeah, are like the- I can actually see the plausibility of that. Just like I can imagine somebody saying barter is not money. Yeah. Right. And, and so, you know, and if I say, but they certainly are, it looks to serve all the functions of money. And they'd be like, well, no, because it's not exchangeable enough. You know, it's not, it's, it's too limited. It depends too much. Uh, what, I don't know what a unit of account is other than it's something that you can use to keep a record of things, or I don't know yeah. what he means by that, but. I think the easiest way, so I kept being a, so, so Ingham is a sociologist, right? And oh, okay. he, he kept insisting in doing his sort of historical analysis of money that money is a unit of account and here, um, here is how I'm going to divide up the historical things and here's what it's going to show about politics and societies and things like that. And as a philosopher, I kept waiting for Ingham to like, give me the argument for money is yeah. a unit of account. And he kind of never did. And he's, he instead took it as sort of like an axiom instead. I think mm-hmm. what he means by unit of account is that it is closest to a unit of measurement. So mm-hmm. it is a unit of measurement that you might think in. So like for a barter transaction, the question would be something like, do I need a pig right now? Am I willing to trade what you're asking for for me from for that pig do i need one right now that's different from having like the pig standard of currency where you think of things in terms of like my house is worth 45 pigs or whatever it is right so so when you oh, start we thinking, need to use that standard when you when you start thinking the thing as like a unit of account uh when you start to think of it in terms when you think of other things in terms of its equivalence to that thing in terms of value i think that's when mm-hmm. you make a unit of account um Thing, okay. In, inflation okay. is crazy here because I uh, I remember there's a passage in Aristotle where he I think he says that a house is worth four beds, um, and I'm I don't know if beds were super expensive or houses were super cheap, but like think things have changed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really depends on what neighborhood you're in. Mm. But okay, so so the the I, I'm finding this ethics of currency already quite fascinating. So. You have these teleological accounts and you re- you reject them as at least the wrong way to approach thinking about what is appropriate to use as currency. Yes. So what other kinds of accounts are there? Maybe there's only one other kind of account, but what other kinds of accounts are there to use to think of what can what what is suitable for for counting as currency? So um, th- so there. I, I could sort of answer two different questions because I think there, there are two different ways to understand what you've said. Um, okay. One, in one respect, I'm pretty happy to let the ontological questions and the ethical questions 
be considered separately. Because maybe it turns out that the proper ontological account of what money is, is a kind of thing that we shouldn't use, right? Maybe it turns out that the proper, that whatever money actually is, is the sort of thing that we shouldn't concern ourselves with for the following ethical or political reasons. So maybe yeah. it turns out that we shouldn't use what most properly counts as money at all. Um, but if you, yeah, go ahead. I, yeah, so on that view, let's say that we have a proper account of what money is. Yeah. And let's say the proper account of what money is, is um, volcano explosions or something. Well, that wouldn't be great to use because that would like destroy the earth, right? Yeah. And then you would say, it turns out all along we've been thinking we've been using money, but we actually have never been using money. Yeah. Except for those rare occasions when volcanoes explode or whatever. And I mean, obviously that's fanciful, but you might say something less fanciful, like money should be something that is universally exchangeable, right? And insofar as there's one person who won't accept it, then there's no money or something like that. So, so that would be a kind of revisionary account of what money is, or it would lead to a revisionary account of how we think about what we call money. Um, yeah. But then you said there's another way of doing this. So what's yeah. another way of doing this? So the other way of doing it is just to kind of do the ethics and political stuff either first or alongside your considerations of money. So you sort of like take the considerations about like, well, what do we need to accomplish here? What are the moral, uh, right? What are the moral reasons involved here? And then let those drive what you choose as your money, right? So mm -hmm. maybe it turns out you need a money, maybe it turns out that you need a money that you can manipulate the quantity of in order to avoid economic shocks, right? Maybe you need something that is kind of like a bad store of value in some respects, or even a bad unit of account. But overall, it's great that you have that lever in it because that allows you to manipulate the and, and avoid sort of like lots of harm and suffering as a result, right? Maybe empirically that's not correct, um, but I think the, the proper way to do it is to think about like, well, what do we need to accomplish morally and politically and then build, you know, choose a currency accordingly rather than yeah. think that there are these freestanding ontological teleological facts about what currency is that we can't do anything about, right? Like we're, we're to a certain extent free to choose what we use as currency. Um, and that, that choice I think should be governed by other moral and political considerations rather than just a consideration of like what money is for. Yeah, so this actually, and I know this is not your area of focus, but it reminds, and it's certainly not mine, but it reminds me of what little I know of the Bitcoin debate which is that some people, a lot of them libertarians, seem really to like Bitcoin precisely because it's not manipulable, or at least not as easily manipulable by governments. And it also allows anonymous transactions, that kind of stuff. Whereas other people, I think, who are not libertarians, or at least it doesn't matter if they're not libertarians, but who don't like this, right? They, they, the whole point of, not the whole point, but one of the important points of money is precisely for it to be manipulable by governments. So we can avoid arguably things like economic shocks or so that we can bring about certain uh, goals that one might think society at large wants, if that even makes any sense to say. So this would be a case where it's like, I, I don't see this as a debate about what money is. Although some people would, might say that Bitcoin's not money because it's so unstable that it, it's really something else because people wouldn't trade it because it's too variable. But, um, but regardless of that, like, 
even if it's not a debate about money, it does seem to be about a debate about what we should use as money. And then you even have the environmental concerns about Bitcoin. Although I gather you have environmental concerns about printing presses and stuff too, for printing dollar currencies and stuff and mining nickel and all this kind of stuff. But I don't know if that's talked about very much. I mean, in terms of the, like, the amount of money, like the amount of ordinary fiat money that has a physical manifestation is a tiny mm -hmm. percentage of mm -hmm. the money that we recognize, right? Most money is kept in electronic um, ledgers, basically, right? Yeah. Your bank account. So the amount, like we could do away with lots of the cash. Um, and some people actually argue that we should do away with lots of cash. Um, so, so that's that's not as big uh, a difficulty. I, I think there are I think there are important differences between like the amount of computing power it takes for your bank to like maintain a record versus what it takes to maintain the blockchain. To mine the Bitcoin. Yeah. To mine Bitcoin, things like that. But but you're right that this is exactly the debate that I'm sort of thinking about here. So there is there is one way either side of that debate might advance an argument that I think is mistaken, right? So someone who wants to argue in favor of Bitcoin could say, look, money just is a unit of account and units of account have to be stable, um, right? Like if how big an inch is changes, that's gonna have terrible consequences. And that just violates what it is. So the consequentialist argument is slightly different, right? Um, if your units of measurement change, that violates what it is to be a unit of measurement. Therefore, we need something that is a stable unit of measurement. That's why Bitcoin is great because it is stable, goes one kind of argument, right? Yeah. Um, we have the same kind of argument on the other side, which is like, um, no, the point, like money is fundamentally a medium of exchange and economic shocks uh, make it so that people can't exchange currency anymore. So you need a currency that is flexible so as to maintain its exchangeability. And that's why you don't want something that is difficult to manipulate. You want something that like you can change if you need. Um, both of those arguments are ones I would reject because they just mm -hmm. read from, this is what money is for, therefore it's gotta be like this. Instead, I think yeah. the right way to settle it has gotta be like, no, here are the important moral or political reasons that we need to protect. And therefore our currency should work like this. And so what, what moral, have you yourself arrived at the important moral or political reasons you think we should think about when we figure out what we should use as a currency? I mean, I, I, ha I haven't entirely, I mean, I haven't entirely or even largely, um, because uh -huh. that's all tied up with the, that's all tied up with the bigger um, question, the bigger questions about like, what are the most important moral and political um, things that we should care about? And I don't think I have solid answers for all of those. Um, yeah. I, I've been thinking about this, you know, with some regularity in between pandemic and personal things. Like insof insofar as I've been able to put like research thought behind this, I am worried about a currency that you can't, that no one can manipulate. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I think there are enough cases in economic history where really bad consequences were averted by the fact that a concept that a currency was manipulated in a way so as to sort of ease those shocks. Um, some, sometimes I think about it like um, critics of that position are like, hey, we, you know, we're on a ship and this ship shouldn't have a rudder because a bad person might aim the ship toward the rocks. And I kind of right. think like, well, if the alternative is to just have no rudder, and go wherever the ocean takes us, 
that seems worse and more dangerous than having a rudder that we might use to guide us away from the rocks, even acknowledging that a malfeasor could use it for bad things, right? I think, I think generally, so a, a currency with some flexibility, some flexibility that can be deliberately controlled by some agency or body or probably not just one person, but like mm -hmm. currency that has some flexibility in it, I think is safer in terms of badness for overall human well-being than a currency yeah. that is entirely inflexible. Now, I mean, though, you could have both at the same time, right? Um, say more like, about do you think that, well, I'm, what I mean to say is that it could be the case that um, cryptocurrencies have a certain level of usefulness, but if everybody had cryptocurrency and that was the only currency in the world, then that would lead to really terrible consequences. But yes. it could also be the case that like, so in other words, you might, it might be good for the world to have a certain amount of cryptocurrency and beyond this, it would start to be bad. Uh, and, or it might be the case that no, allowing cryptocurrency at all is a bad idea because it's the sort of thing that the more you allow it, the more it'll spread and eventually fiat currency won't be able to, I don't know if it's called fiat currency or whatever, but the alternative to cryptocurrency would, would no longer be able to work. So is your view that basically we should like do what we can to get rid of cryptocurrency or is it rather that um, as, as long as we have a fairly large amount of fiat money, then we're okay? Um, so I don't have a view about that partially because I think there are something like 3000 distinct kinds of cryptocurrency right now, mm -hmm. all with different kinds of properties. So the advocates for Bitcoin, one of the things that they like is, as I understand it from a cryptography professor I know, written into the code of Bitcoin is the fact that there is a finite amount of that. Um, right. But that's just an artifact of Bitcoin. There are other cryptocurrencies that are not in the same way in principle limited to a finite amount. The code would allow them to create more quantity in cases where you needed to or whatever. So I don't have a generic view about cryptocurrency because there are so many different kinds of cryptocurrency. Um, yeah. I am a little worried. So if like, I'm, I'm still not settled on what I think the essential nature of money is, whether it's unit of account or whether it's um, uh, things like unit of account, uh, store of value or medium of exchange. Um, but I do think there is something to Ingham's argument that money is a unit of account because it's like the units that you think in. And uh -huh. if money is the units that you think in, it has a way, it's hard to contain it, right? Like even though I've lived in Canada for 12 years now, I still convert things in US, into US dollars in my head in order to understand, right? right? And yeah. so there's a way, I think, I mean, I think it's plausible to think that the US dollar is currently the world's reserve currency um, because it's what you sort of measure everything in terms of, right? You sort of like translate it down into the U.S. dollar. Um, yeah. The U.S. dollar is flexible, and I think that's probably a good thing. I worry that it's going to be hard to contain, like having just a little bit of a distinct currency might be hard, because if what it is to have a currency is to think in those terms of units, maybe that has a way of spreading as it becomes the world currency or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um you, you said a second ago that you don't know whether to think of money as a unit of account or a store of value or medium of exchange. Like I have two reactions to that. The first is 
um, surely it can be all three of those, right? Unless they're yeah. somehow, unless ha having it count as one contradicted having it count as another. And the other one is, um, I imagine that the way we think about this is we do look at the record, the historical record. I mean, not, you said there are some who don't, but I mean, I, that would be my first instinct just to read about the history of what we have called money, try to see, you know, broadly speaking, what those things have in common, uh, when those things sort of stopped working as money and for what reason. And then from that, try to come up with, I mean, maybe, maybe money has an essence because it's a human creation. And so, uh, but I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily um, bank on, not, no pun intended, I wouldn't necessarily bank on it having an essence though. Like it might just be a, a family resemblance term too. Um, but is that, do you, do you try to, do you try to go about figuring out what money is by like looking at the historical record or a Wittgensteinian approach or? Yeah. So um, part of my reason in saying that is just that it reflects a debate that is relatively current in the philosophy uh -huh. of money between people who want to pick one of those as the like defining essential feature. So Ingham wants to argue that money is essentially a unit of account and wants to reject anything that is exchangeable but fails to be a unit of account. And then there's another yeah. uh, group of authors, uh, Smith uh, et al, who've written a series of papers about this. And they think money is just a, a means of exchange. And they think it doesn't matter at all if, you, if money is a unit of account. So part of my waffling on that is just to reflect the fact that I know there's an ongoing debate in the literature about like, if it's gotta be one. I myself am open to the idea that it might be all three. Um, and a colleague of mine that I've been talking to about this is I think most swayed by a kind of like, Wittgensteinian family resemblance account that like it's a cluster concept and like maybe not all of the things will share all of the properties but they have a kind of family resemblance among them and maybe mm -hmm. that's the way to go. Um, I am a little skeptical of being able to do this. Uh, I mean you could do it in like a corpus linguistics way like you could just go back and say like what is each figure out what the word for money is in each case and see what it gets applied to but yeah. all of the historical examples that I know of involve at the foreground or in the background uh, a theoretical inflection where there's a point where they're like looking at some data and they've got to decide whether, wait, am I looking at a monetary phenomenon or not? And that's where they bring yeah. in their concept to sort of divide it up. And do you think when they do that, the people who, who, who do this historical work, and I don't, again, I don't mean to dog on them, but I, I would like to think philosophers are good at something, right? That philosophers are good at say conceptual analysis or something like that. And um, is it the case where you, where you read some of these accounts and they don't even notice that they're using this conceptual apparatus to justify counting this as not money and to count these other things as money. And you think to yourself, boy, they sure could have used the help of a philosopher here. Well, so, I mean, I think that happens in some superficial cases, but there's a there's a wrinkle to this where, um, like, if I read it just as a philosopher where I'm looking for, like, what is the concept of money at play in here, then that stands out to me. But the move is not usually unmotivated um, uh -huh. because the most famous just so story about the origin of money gives, um, joins very closely the concept of money with the with a genealogical story about where money came from, right? And so they sort of say like, well, look, this is what money is. And you can see that 
uh, in terms of where it came from. And then they sort of tell a story, Adam Smith tells this story in The Wealth of Nations about the division of labor and then the double coincidence of wants and then the inefficiency of barter. And then finally you mm-hmm. get money as a more general medium of exchange. And this just so story is meant to give you sort of both the history and the concept at the same time. Yeah. And the people like David Graeber or Alexander Douglas, who also makes this point very explicitly, think that if you can show that genealogical story to be false, you thereby have an argument against that conception of money. And so part of their argument is to go back and say, look, because the advocates for this kind of origins in barter, um, commodity theory of money themselves think their account depends on a particular historical account that pretty much doesn't look like it's true, making the historical argument amounts to a conceptual argument because of the way their sort of opponents have put it together, right? So it isn't just, Mm -hmm. I have picked a concept of money and I'm gonna apply it um, wherever I feel like it. They take themselves to be responding to a conceptual genealogical argument that they think they can undermine because the two things are related. Some some people, there are some folks in that neighborhood who think that argument is either sort of like correlated, but I think Alex Douglas argues that that origin story is actually logically interrelated. So that if you can, if you can disprove the genealogical story, you have thereby shown the concept to be mistaken. Yeah, and I'm guessing you wouldn't go for that approach just because of what you were saying earlier about how the function of money is not necessarily related to how we should use it or like stories about the function of money. Yeah, that, that and other sorts of reasons that I think I think the concepts in the genealogy can come apart. Um, yeah, and that doesn't mean that the concept's a bad one. It just means yeah. we need to do better history or something. Yeah. So let, let's, get, let's get to the ethics of tipping because you mentioned that you sure. were world famous because of your what you had to say about it. World famous in the world of Calgary. Yes, there we go. Yeah. Um, and so, so like here's, if you ask me, Rob, what are the ethics of tipping? I would say, well, uh, I guess the first thing I would think of is the question of when does somebody deserve a tip and when do they don't, when do they not deserve a tip? But I'm guessing that's, that's not the angle you focus on, or at least not the only one. Maybe you're even wondering about the practice of tipping itself, because you said you talked about it and then perhaps causally related to your conversations, there was a restaurant that got rid of the practice of tipping. So perhaps the ethics of tipping is about, should we even have the practice? Yeah, it's more the, it's more the latter about whether or not okay. we have a practice of tipping or not. So the, so the way the media story played was, um, you know, a local restaurant here in Calgary um, during our, during the Stampede, which is our sort of big annual event where lots of people come to town, um, they experimented with doing away with tips entirely. And the question was like, is that a good ethical decision or not? Um, mm-hmm. And I think many people's initial response to it is precisely what you thought, which is like, well, when does someone deserve a tip or not? Um, which rests on the premise that tips are usually given in response to good service. Um, but there's mm-hmm. a guy whose name escapes me for the moment, but he's at Cornell and has done, he's like kind of the world experts on, world's expert on tipping. And has Yeah, done, I heard a, a podcast about him, yeah. Yeah, we probably heard the same one, right? So he's done all of this empirical research to show um, if you think you are tipping in response to good service, you are deluding yourself. Um, because that accounts for a, a, like maybe a tiny percentage in the variation of tips, but what tipping actually responds to are things like the weather, 
and then demographic considerations of your server. Um, sometimes I think there's something like if male servers, uh, if male presenting servers kneel uh, at the table, that tends to improve their tip, but it doesn't work for female presenting servers. So it's like, um, we are responding to all kinds of external factors which are not related to the quality of the service. And so um, tipping ends up being like random at best um, and like racist and misogynist at worst um, because you're just responding to these other things, not to the quality of the service. And that's why, you know, I went on TV to say like, no, I think it's good to do away with a practice of tipping uh, because we think we are responding to service quality or we are incentivizing service quality, but there's lots of empirical research to show that that's just not true. And we are instead responding to either random factors or morally bad factors. Okay. And so why, I guess, I guess, uh, I guess the answer to that question would be fairly clear. I was about to ask, why is it that tipping wouldn't be correlated with how good the service was? Um, I mean, of course, it's going to be difficult to determine from a social scientific point of view, what counts as good service. And often, you know, how good the service somebody gives you is not up to them, right? It might be up to the kitchen. It might be up to how crowded the restaurant is. Now, I don't know how often people take these things into consideration. So speaking for myself and my wife, who's the person I most often go out to restaurants with, we at least think we're taking those factors into consideration. Like we'll say, well, the service didn't seem very good to us, but it's look how busy the restaurant is. Right. And so we'll say, you know, and we generally always give 20% just because, or yeah. roughly that, because, you know, we like double something. Um, and so we, I, I would say what we're responding to is not um, how good this, well, we are responding to how good we think the service is, but it's, we use a threshold conception. Like as long as you don't fall below this threshold, you get 20%. Right. And if you're above the threshold, you get 20%. And, you know, I don't know how, I'm sure we don't have a very um, crystal clear understanding of the threshold we use. And yeah. it's possible demographic factors, as you call them, play a role in that. Um, but yeah, so, so it seems like um, you, you're, you, it, it seems like it's, you think it's a fairly straightforward issue, right? It's not like one where there's, I mean, a lot of philosophy issues are, I think, quite contestable even if people have very strong feelings about them, but it seems like you think this one's actually kind of a simple matter. I mean, I pretty much do based on the empirical research that I've seen because mm -hmm. the amount that the magnitude of your tip tends to vary with irrelevant or morally bad factors leads me to believe that like the, the I mean, in substance, what the practice seems to do is just um, make workers more vulnerable uh, to the whims of other people result in people being sort of underpaid and further exacerbating lots of discriminatory things. And so like mm -hmm. think a system in which you just like get an hourly wage is way better. Um, so I think since I, since I looked at this research and since I did it um, there, I can't remember. There was, I, I did go to a restaurant once where uh, the waiter uh, refused to take our order and sat in a booth across from us and just drank shots of whiskey while we were waiting for things. And I didn't tip him. Um, but mm -hmm. other than that, I just tipped 20% to absolutely everybody with the thought, which is like, if I start engaging what I think is my rational brain on what magnitude of tip I should give, I'm just leaving myself vulnerable to all kinds of 
dumb and morally bad stuff. So I'm just not going to do that. I just like, I'm going to tip a standard percentage. Now, um, do you know if I'm, I'm, there are countries that don't have tipping practices. Has there been any studies about whether people are more or less or equally satisfied with the service they get in those countries? I mean, it's going to be tricky, right? Because you're talking about people who are used to a no tipping culture, evaluating the service they get in a no tipping culture versus people who are used to a tipping culture, evaluating the service they get on a tipping culture. But I'm like, do Americans who go to, let's say, German restaurants where there's much less of a role that tips play, do they think of the service as on average worse or the same or better? Has there been any research on that? Like, does tipping actually make servers try harder? So I'm, I'm not personally aware of any, um, let me say a couple of things about that. I'm not aware of any like good research uh, about that question. Um, when I did this media stuff, I did get lots of stories from people about like, I went to France and the waiters were really mean to me and I had a bad time. Um, and I think there are lots of confounders in that because it's really hard to tell which is like the difference in tipping culture and like just the general cultural differences that you might be reacting to or like that's yeah, going to be really the hard to figure out. Um, but also it seems pretty clear to me that like suppose the culture of tipping made service much better. Uh, is that worth further ingraining racist and sexist discriminatory payment like schemes? No. Like, so I think even if it turns out that tipping like demonstrably improves service, it is not mm -hmm. what it costs morally um, in further ingraining these other problems. Wouldn't that depend on the degree to which it improved service and the degree to which it ingrained those problems? Or do you think even even if it massively improved service and only a very small bit worsened those problems, it's still unacceptable. Uh, in general, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't uh, know if I exactly think those two things are lexically prior to one another, but like, I, like maybe I can imagine, <laughs> I mean, I can imagine crazy cases, which is like a no tipping culture frequently results in servers murdering their guests. And if we like institute tipping that stuff, like you can build a crazy case like that where maybe, where maybe like the downside of service causes so much human suffering that I'm willing to yeah. say like, okay, that's really bad. Maybe we need, maybe a little, maybe a little inequality is worth avoiding that. Um, but in terms of like the plausible difference between experiences I've had in North American restaurants versus the ones I've had in European restaurants, like I can't see that difference being big enough to make a difference. What about consumer side worries. So you were worried about the effects about um, exacerbating racial and sexual inequalities among servers, but what about worsening racial and sexual inequalities among consumers, right? What if getting rid of tipping made waiters less willing to serve uh, people who are black or people who are women or whatever? I don't know. I, I don't know if this has been studied, but I was just like, would then you have to do a consequentialist kind of waiting? Uh, no pun intended. Yeah. I mean, maybe, but I'm... So if... I mean, I'm skeptical that would happen, but... Yeah, it, it is. So um, it's plausible to me that we might, that there might be research to indicate or we might find that there is indeed that kind of problem on the consumer side, but it's not obvious to me that the solution to those problems is to reinstate tipping, right? You could, it seems like there are other ways you might want to address those problems without 
it, it is it would be surprising to me if the institution of tipping was like the unique and most efficient solution to those problems, right? So like it's plausible but, to me. Yeah. But couldn't I, I, I guess I'm getting into an argument, but I, I don't know, these things, these thoughts are occurring to me. Couldn't I say the same thing about getting rid, getting rid of tipping? Like the problems that tipping supposedly exacerbates or causes are in fact not due to tipping. It's due to other problems that precede the institution of tipping. It's people going in there and already having negative attitudes towards black servers or towards sure. female servers or whatever. But yeah. you're just saying, so I'm just wondering if it would work on both sides. Like maybe tipping is really not the issue. I mean, yeah. but I guess you're saying, you're saying tipping is the issue in the sense that here are genuine inequalities that literally do get resolved when you get rid of tipping. Like it's, it's, a, it's a practicable strategy that has demonstrable effects yeah something like that yeah yeah okay. and and not just those discriminatory things right there's also just a generic issue about workers rights and adequate pay uh right mm -hmm. and i think like in the united states especially like the hourly wage for tipped servers is like fantastically low and leaving somebody's livelihood up to the whims of the customers that just seems bad from you know that seems like bad for all the reasons that you might want like a minimum wage for people or uh, to make sure that people have sort of enough money for the work that they do and so it just seems like there are there are the upside to the institution of tipping seems so extremely minimal and the downside is so yeah. big that it, it really does seem pretty straightforward that like tipping bad yeah i guess like so i've always had an issue with the minimum wage in the sense that you know, I, I have certain worries about its economic effects in general, um, which are, you know, I know it's a very complicated literature, yeah. um, but, but I, I've always wondered why it would be a, the business's role to provide a living wage as opposed to the government's. And shouldn't it be like the business's role to set the wage rather than the government's sort of thing? Like I would be okay with the universal basic income. And then just like, I feel like the minimum wage issue would not be as pressing like, because I can see some some advantages to having, I mean, I also see some disadvantages, but I can see some advantages to having a system where people are at the whims of the customers in the sense that they're competing to try to win their affection. It might produce better service, just like any, any area where uh, competition might produce better outcomes. This could just be one of them. And you could always see such areas as ones where workers are left at the whims of the consumer. But I don't know, you know, if I don't know how much like, and you can tell me this because I'm guessing you're an expert. I don't know how, when you include tipping, how underpaid servers are compared to industries that have comparable skill requirements or something like that. I realize their their base pay is much lower, but what's their actual take home pay when you include tips? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not expert about that empirical mm -hmm. question at all, and like, um, so if if you, if you're, if the position you're advancing is like, well, I don't like a minimum wage because I would prefer a universal based income. Like that's not the only reason, but yeah. I, yeah. But it, like, it, that's a position I'm pretty happy with. Right. Like, so my, if, if that's the alternative and it turns out that that's most economically efficient, like I'm, I'm in, I have no objections to that. Um, but in the absence of that, right. It seems like it's better like to have a minimum wage that guarantees a, a basic standard 
um, for at least work yeah. as like a piecemeal solution for the system that we actually have, right? Like it's kind of like employer provided healthcare. Like I would prefer that people have healthcare. I don't know if employer provided healthcare is the best thing, but for lots of people in America, that's like, you know, that's the way for them to have healthcare now. So maybe that's the way we do it, acknowledging that there may be better ways to do it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know that I would favor minimum wage even without a basic income, but that would be a longer argument to talk about. Um, I, I'd have to think more about that. But I think, um, I think I've gotten a good sense of what you talk about. So you're talking about the ethics of currency, the ethics of tipping. You like ethics. You're like an ethicist of business. Would that be it, fair to call you that? I, I think it would be fair to call me that now. I, I was once the chair of business ethics at the University of Calgary. Um, that was my first position here and I held it for the first four years that I was here. Um, and I yeah. arguably knew far less about business ethics than I do now that I am no longer chair. Um, but- So this is like a Peter Principle thing. Like- Sort of. You, you, knew, you knew just enough about business ethics to hold the chair, but then you started to know more and you're like, we can't have you do this anymore. So were, were, were you, did you lose the chairship because of embezzlement? What happened? Uh, we don't like to talk about that and I'm constrained by an NDA. So here, this is actually an artifact of the jumble of Canadian terminology uh, because yeah. chair, at least where I am, means externally funded. Um, and so oh. I was given a chair that had an endowment to let it live for three to four years, but not to live in perpetuity. And so I held the chair as long as the chair existed. And then once mm -hmm. it didn't anymore, I was instead installed into this tenure track position with a fellowship in the business school as a sort of continuation of me, but not without the title. So like my title got worse, but my job got much better because the chair was temporary and non-tenure track, but nicely titled. And so I went yeah. down title, but up in job security, which is totally happy and fine with me. So let me ask you a, a closing question um, sure. about the field of business ethics as a whole. Do you think this field um, should be more studied by philosophers than it is? Is this like one of the one of the few areas of philosophy of, of philosophy that might suffer from a shortage of philosophers rather than a surplus, or you think? it's actually pretty well maintained. Like, are, do you find yourself thinking, God, this is so interesting. Why aren't more people talking about this, right? I have to like, because one of the things you said was that when you first got into philosophy of money, there wasn't a lot of interest in it. And now you said, or you implied that there's a lot more interest in the philosophy of money than there used to be. So yeah. have you seen the field growing a lot in the last, let's say uh, 13 years? Um, so the field, I, I think of philosophy of money and business ethics as like separate fields. Um, oh, right. It, like business ethics is much older and like, you know, much more august and has way more people yeah. working in it. Um, like uh, philosophy of money as like a subdiscipline of philosophy has definitely grown over the last 13 years or so, uh, because when I first taught a class in it um, and when I would first sort of like start to say that I worked in it, people would go, oh, what's that? and there weren't like other people doing it. There were maybe two or three people working, but we didn't really know about each other. But like now there's an SDP article about the philosophy of money and finance. Um, there's this special issue of the Journal of Social Ontology. And there's like, you know, it's a thing that I now have people like, I sometimes have graduate students come say, hey, I want to work 
in the philosophy of money. And so it's becoming, you know, it's becoming a thing, right? In, in yeah. a weird way, I have felt myself to be in the same position of many of the advocates for Bitcoin, um, because since about 2009, we have both been engaged in a project to try to convince people that this is actually a thing, right? So, yeah. and, the, and the more people I convince that philosophy of money is a subdiscipline of philosophy, the more right I become in just the same kind of way that like the more people who agree that Bitcoin is a currency, the, the more yeah. it is. Don't business scholars call those network effects? They do. Uh, network effects yes. and sometimes Tinkerbell effects. They call them Tinkerbell effects? I don't know if effects, but it, it's like the, the Tinkerbell phenomenon that if you believe in something hard enough, uh, or if enough people yeah. believe in it hard enough, it becomes true. They should call that the secret effect. That, the law of attraction. That might involve trademark infringement. Um, oh, that's I mean, a good point. Although yeah. Tinkerbell is owned by Disney, and they, they tend to like to protect their trademarks as well. So who knows? Yeah, I guess I'll just say network effects. That's probably for the best. Because I, I don't want to get sued. Yeah. Uh, well, I kind of want to get sued. I don't there, know. Like, just, it'll be a good story. Just to be a persnickety philosopher, I think there might be something slightly different than network effects, because uh -huh. I think network effects re um, refer to the value of something. So, like, okay. if you're the only person with a fax machine, a fax machine isn't very valuable. But, like, the more fax yeah. machines there are, the more valuable it is, the more valuable they sort of become which is kind of weird because usually scarcity improves value. And so there's like a weird difference in value. But yeah. if you're the only person with a fax machine, it's not clear that the fax machine doesn't exist, right? And the thing that I'm talking about is like the more people who sign on for something, the more it becomes true rather than the more it becomes mm. valuable, right? Yeah, yeah. So I guess maybe Tinkerbell effects would be better for this phenomenon or Tinkerbell phenomenon would be better yeah. for this set of effects. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think so. Okay. All right. Well, good. Well, um, we don't have to wish to make this podcast real. It just happened. So thanks very much for joining us, David. Um, I hope you had almost as good time as I did. Because it's better to give than to receive. Uh, yes, I, I appreciate that. And I admire you always putting yourself first, Rob. So, um, so th but thank you very much for inviting me. It's, 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 it's nice what I do. It, and it's nice to have a chance to talk about these things.